0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Ben Fountain, author of a short story collection, Brief Encounters with Shea Guevara, which won the Penn Hemingway Award, and most recently, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, which won the 2012 National Book Critics Circle Award and was a finalist for the National Book Award. He has a law degree from Duke University. Ben Fountain is from North Carolina and lives in Dallas, Texas. In 1988, Ben Fountain quit practicing law to become a full-time writer. It took him 18 years to publish his first book. We began our discussion talking about what the decision to quit a lucrative career was like for him.
1: Yeah, that was... I'm sure that was the hardest decision I've ever made in my life because I was I was 30 years old and I've been practicing law for 5 years things were going well I had this safe lucrative career path ahead of me and I also had this this corporate identity this real world identity and I and I think in this culture that means a lot I think a, a lot of our identity comes from this external Scaffolding that we attach ourselves to, you know, whatever institution that we're part of. So when you cut yourself loose from that, I mean, you're you're thrown back on yourself. And so when somebody asks you what you do, well, you say I'm a writer, and and they say, oh, well, what books have you written? Well, I haven't written any books. And so then you're a bum, and and so in the eyes of the world, you have to learn to live with that. I suppose. This avocation started building in me, this vocation started building in me from the age of about 14 or 15, and I read Big Two-Hearted River and uh, was kind of floored by that story because it seemed like an incredibly dense and profound story to me, and yet when I, when I went through and read it again, nothing much seemed to happen. And so I think I was so intrigued by that and got so much pleasure out of it that I went out and, and, and tried to get everything Hemingway wrote to read it. I just got a tremendous amount of pleasure. And I guess it occurred to me at some point, if you got that much pleasure out of reading something like this, how much more pleasure you might get by writing your own. And so that that impulse or or that notion stayed with me you know, all those years, and and I majored in English in college. I did some fiction writing there, but not a whole lot. And uh, then went off to law school, and I think I was trying to avoid it um, because it scared me and intimidated me. But finally, I mean, it had been building all those years, and and at the age of 30, I decided, well, I'm never going to have any peace in myself if I don't try to do this. And so I walked away from the law and started writing.
0: You were featured in an article in The New Yorker by Malcolm Gladwell called Late Bloomers. And one of the things he said is that the lesson of late bloomers is their success is contingent on the efforts of others. You had a wife who supported you. Could you have seen another way to do this if that wasn't your circumstance?
1: Um, I don't know. That, that's, that's an open question. I had an enabler that a lot of people don't have. I mean, I met my wife in law school I told her on our first date I had no intention of practicing law in my life, that what I really wanted to do was, to do was write books. And so, I, you know, she had fair warning. But uh, it was something we had talked about over the years, me um, leaving the law to try to write. And uh, when we were really getting down to this decision, she was in favor of it. She wanted to keep on practicing, and she could go 100% of her career, which is what she wanted to do. But,, uh, if I hadn't had that kind of situation, if I'd been the sole breadwinner or the main breadwinner, it would have been very tough. And I think people who, especially young people who, I mean, they want to write, they want that to be their life's work. um this this problem of making money, it's gonna be a major challenge. And I think if it's a powerful thing in this young person, they will structure their life in a way that they can get that two or three hours a day or, or two or three hours, say, five days a week in to do their writing, and everything's going to revolve around that. Um, I think it's, it, it takes that amount of, um, of desire and and planning to to live in this culture as a writer and try to make it.
0: So, you know, after you quit and you and you just started writing, and I know you were very disciplined. I think I read you wrote from about 7 or 7.30 until noon, had lunch, took a nap, and then wrote until 3. What was that like for you in your head when you just sat down to write your first story? And, I mean, obviously, well, writing is something you get better at. So how did you feel about what you wrote and your path?
1: Um, well, let me say that it it took me a while to build up to writing five to six hours a day. At first, I was good for about three or four hours, and then my brain was fried. And, um, and so I would have lunch with my, you know, my law firm friends, and, and they would say, well, you know, h- how many hours are you working a day? And I'd tell them, and they'd say, God, man, you are a bum. And I said, well, look at it this way. How many hours of the day when you're at work are you concentrating 100%? And I think when you look at it that way, you realize that that's why writer—not so many writers write more than five or six hours a day, because you have to give it 100%. And we only, most of us, only have so much mental capacity before, you know, the brain starts to short out. But yeah, I mean, I decided. I mean, I wasn't messing around. I'd walked away from a good career to try this, and so. Um, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to get up and if I feel like writing, I'll write. I mean, I got up every day, five days a week, and and on the weekends, if if the kids were covered, I'd try to work then. I hated everything I wrote for the first three or four years. Um, It was awful. I didn't know how to make it better except to keep writing. Over time, you know, certain things would start to please me. Well, you know, I wrote a decent phrase there, or I came up with a decent sentence, or there was an insight that that gave me pleasure. But those first three or four years, um, it's not easy, you know, doing work when most of what you produce you find nauseating. But I suppose, you know, on some level, I realized if I was ever going to get to um, the kind of writing that would please me, this is what I had to do. I had to figure it out on the page, line by line.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Ben Fountain, author of the novel, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. So do you find writing hard?
1: Oh, it's awful. It's awful in the sense that uh, it's the hardest thing to do. But by the same token, it's the most satisfying. And um, and I'm happy to say that, that over the years, it has brought me more pleasure. And um, and now I, I really, really look forward to sitting down at the desk every day. Uh, over the years, I've gotten to the point where I can sit down, and I've got my cup of tea, and, and I pick up my pen. And um, and pretty quickly, you know, I'm in that story. I'm in the, in the, sto- in the world of the story. It's that kind of concentration uh, where you lose yourself, that sense of yourself, and it's only the thing you're working on. And uh, I, I, I'm happy when I'm when I'm in that zone.
0: How did you know that your work was getting better? I mean, what, what signaled to you when you read it and you knew it was bad, and then you read it and you thought, mm, that that's better?
1: Uh, let's see, I wouldn't gag. I think part of being a writer, becoming a writer, is developing a critical facility for your own work. And being able to recognize what's bad, what's good, and what might become good with um, more thought and more work, and also reading like a writer. You know before I started writing, I read, you know, like everybody else, I read to see what happens next. Over time, I started to realize that I need to figure out how these things get put together. And so I started reading with a pen in my hand, and I started marking things up. And, you know, trying to figure it out on the level of the line and also in larger terms, you know, like the level of the narrative and, and, and at the level of individual scenes and then the connective tissue between scenes.
0: Well, I think that's one of the challenges, you know, when people read that I think it took you 18 years to publish your short story collection, that you need uh, – it's a marathon – but did you go in realizing that, or do you feel like people around you realize that in the writing culture it takes that long?
1: I had the fantasies that I expect a lot of um, aspiring writers have, and that would I would write two or three or four years, produce my novel, and you know the wonderful fairy tale story would come true. An agent would find you; they'd send out your novel. You'd start getting short stories published in the New Yorker. Random House would offer you a seven-figure advance, and boom, you're on your way and you're established. And um, it doesn't happen that way for uh, for most of us. As you say, it's a marathon, not a sprint or even a middle-distance race. And what gets you, what keeps you going through all that? Um, for me, it finally came down to after eight or nine years of writing and a failed novel and um, just a handful of Stories published in small obscure magazines, it came down to um, taking pleasure in the work itself. And by then, all those illusions and fantasies had been stripped away. And um, I thought, okay, what am I doing this for? I mean, nobody wants to waste their life. And I didn't want this to be a self-indulgent exercise where I'm just sitting there writing to please myself. But On one level, that's what it has to be and maybe the most important level.
0: I think one of the things I envision that's one of the hardest with language and and writing is that maybe you have this image in your mind for a story or just one simple concept, like guy meets a stranger, and then you start writing. I mean, it gets more specific than that, but in your head you have this vision but then what's on the page doesn't match your vision? Have you had that experience, and how have you dealt with that?
1: For me, that's, that's, that's uh, always the experience, is that it starts with something, you know, a notion or, or a character or something you see on the street or something that you read. And so it's just, you know, it might, it might have one clear shard to it. And um, so you start teasing it out. And for a long time, that was the agony of it. And weirdly, over the years, that's become the pleasure of it, um, is teasing it out, um, following it where it leads.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Ben Fountain, author of the novel, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. The story takes place all in one day at Texas Stadium where a group of heroic soldiers from the Iraq War, including 19-year-old Billy Lynn, are being honored and performing as part of the halftime show during the Thanksgiving Day Dallas Cowboys football game. I'd like to talk about Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. Since you said that books start from sort of a notion, what was the notion or image you had in your head and how did this story unfold for you?
1: Well, the there was this like this kind of cloud of, of anger and confusion, and uh, and sadness over where the country had been going um, for the first years of the of um, the first decade of the century, and and especially after nine eleven, and it culminated with Bush's re-election in two thousand four, or you know actually it was his election. Um, because he wasn't actually elected in two thousand, but to me it it seemed so clear that that the war had had been sold and and undertaken under false pretenses and and so how the American people could affirm that by you know giving Bush the majority of the votes, I just couldn't get my head around it, and I know I'm being political here, but I think you can't write a war novel without it being political, and so that Thanksgiving. We had the uh, Dallas Cowboys game on TV and and uh, we had a bunch of people over to the house and the game was kind of on in, in the background and the halftime show came on and uh, I was sitting on the couch and I actually started to pay attention to the halftime show. And it's pretty much the way I write it in the book. I mean this surreal mashup of of militarism and triumphalism and American exceptionalism and and pop culture and softcore porn and and it's all, mixed into this one big stew, and I'm thinking, that's this is the most insane thing I've ever seen. And it's also just another normal day in America. And right in the middle of all that, there was this small group of soldiers. Um, I mean, there were lots of soldiers down in the field that day, but there was this very small group of soldiers in desert camos, and they were tan and lean. And, and I thought, oh, they've just come back from Iraq or Afghanistan. And then I noticed they were drunk. They were stumbling around laughing, and it was all a big joke to them. And I thought, well, yeah, of course. How else would you stay you know, marginally sane in the middle of this you know, crazy situation? And, and so that was the germ of the book.
0: What was your approach to writing about war not having served, and did you try to not write it for a while?
1: It was a pretty powerful thing in me right from the start, and, and I was working on other things. And so... For the next three or four years, my default reading was always military reading, and mostly um, books about the current Iraq and Afghanistan wars. It felt like a story I, I really wanted to explore at some point, and I was very conscious of the fact that I don't have a military background, and um, when you go into something like this, I mean a a life experience where it's literally life and death at stake, but it's not your experience. I think that's, that's a pretty fraught proposition. And um, you don't do it lightly. You don't do it idly. And if you do go into it, you do everything you can to immerse yourself into the experience. And uh, so I felt, I felt like I had to earn the right to try to write a book like that. And um, and that started with doing a lot of research.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Ben Fountain, author of the novel, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. There's so much in this book, so many different sort of commentaries on life in America and war. And did these come out naturally or did you plan them somehow? I felt like
1: all that was in there with the germ of the story. and Or maybe I didn't think that. Maybe I just sensed it. Um, you get stronger or weaker feelings about ideas. And especially as you do this work for a while, you start you know, hopefully to develop some sense of the potential in a particular notion. And with that one notion of those soldiers in the middle of that halftime show, and the fact that they looked drunk to me, while everybody else, you know, was very serious and marching in lockstep, and these guys are like, for them, it's a joke. I felt like there was a lot there, and, um, uh, you know, a lot in terms of, you know, class in America, and and uh, spectacle, and, and marketing, you know, how things get sold, whether they be whether they be actual things or political agendas or philosophies or whatever. And um, so I just trusted that if I wrote the story correctly, these things would start coming from the inside out. I mean, just as a natural course of of telling the story, and and they did. I mean, this was one of those times where where I guessed right, and the story did have um, a lot of the potential that I was hoping for.
0: What was the biggest element of surprise when you were writing that came out?
1: I suppose the first was that it ended up taking place all in one day. And there's one extended flashback, but it's not about the battle. It's about Billy's two days with his family. And I always assumed that at some point I would do a set piece that portrays the battle for which the Bravos became famous. And I got to the end of the first draft, and and that hadn't happened. And I thought, well, it will happen on the second draft. You know, I'll see where it goes. I did the second draft, and it still hadn't happened. And by about the third draft, I'm working along, and I'm thinking, okay, it just doesn't fit. It just doesn't feel right to force it in. You know, the idea started to feel corny to me or predetermined. It's like, well, this is what everybody expects. You know, this big set piece that's going to lay out the battle and and it's going to show the horror of war, and, and you know, the reader will, will turn away and say, oh, God, war is horrible, you know, in this, in this kind of satisfying way. And, uh, and I thought, no, I'm not going to give the reader that. I'm going to give the reader what the soldiers experienced, and that was bits and pieces and fragments and confusion and bewilderment, and it's just going to be pieces of it. I'm not going to give you the whole thing. So that was one surprise. The other surprise was was the language. As I got into it, I, I was thinking that the language needed to be dense and um, and fast and and uh, just kind of a sensory overload sort of experience. And um, and the language did that for me. I mean, I tried to plug into this wonderful American language that we have, and a lot of the that's an aspect of the book that pretty much satisfied me.
0: One of the things I do ask my authors on the show is their influences or something that really touched them, and I'm wondering if you can read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer.
1: When I started thinking about these things and trying to figure out, well, what is America and what is the collective psyche, um, why do we do the things we do as a country, I started consciously seeking out writers who have who have explored that question and I mean a lot of fine writers have done it. Um, I mean Robert Stone is one, Joan Didion, um, and Norman Mailer. And um, so I read a lot of those writers when, when I was getting into this. Um, and so I think Norman Mailer's work of reportage, um, Miami and the Siege of Chicago, is a, is a wonderful American book. It's nonfiction but um, it has the scope and depth of fiction. And um, so I I want to read a couple of passages where Mailer, he's at the 1968 Republican Convention in Miami, and um, the convention where Nixon was was nominated, and Nixon would go on to win against Humphrey in the fall. And Mailer talking about the way he thinks and feels about Nixon, and it's going to be two passages, and, and I'll let you know when I make the jump. And and Mailer refers to himself in the third person, he, meaning Mailer, he has disliked him, meaning Nixon, intimately ever since his Checker speech in 1952. The kind of man who, who was ready to plow sentimentality in such a bog was the kind of man who would press any button to manipulate the masses. And there was large fear in those days of buttons which might ignite atomic wars. Nixon's presence on television had inspired emotions close to nausea. There had been a gap between the man who spoke and the man who lived behind the speaker, which offered every clue of schizophrenia in the American public if they failed to recognize the void within the presentation. Okay, so that's the first passage. Then the second passage is he's he's looking at Nixon during a press conference. And so Mailer starts wondering, had he really improved? the reporter caught himself hoping that Nixon had. If his physical presence inspired here no great joy or even distrust, it gave the sense of a man still entrenched in toils of isolation, as if only the office of the presidency could be equal in the specific density of its importance to the labyrinthine delivery of the natural man to himself. Then and only then might he know the strength of his own hand and his own moral desire. It might even be a measure of the not entirely dead promise of America if a man as opportunistic as the early Nixon could grow in reach and comprehension and stature to become a leader. For if that were possible in these bad years, then all was still possible and the country not stripped of its blessing.
0: And they influenced you while you were writing this book? Well, a couple of
1: things, and that is the intersection of the external life with the interior life. And, um, I mean, the fact that, that so much of, of, you know, what goes on in the outside world, I mean, we absorb it and it becomes part of our, our interior world and also Mailer's willingness to keep looking at Nixon with fresh eyes and to keep questioning his own assumptions and prejudices about the guy. I mean, he's, he's really trying to look with as clear a vision as possible and, um, I mean he's writing a political book but I mean he hasn't made up his mind. He's he's still in the process of 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 trying to figure out what's real and what's out there and so um so that passage I found you know really instructive on a lot of levels.
0: And what about as a writer something that you were trying to capture and it that you that you wrote and it can be something that was hard to write or something that changed from the first draft or something that you you liked
1: um, okay I'm gonna read a passage from a story called The Lion's Mouth and it's about a, an American aid worker in Sierra Leone and her name is Jill and um, and she's gotten herself in a tough situation and so um, I mean she's in imminent danger and so I'm just gonna read I'm trying to work out her complicated, Um, moral dilemma and ethical stance about all this. I'm not sure how much you'll get just in this passage, but all right. She rested her head against the seat and watched a flock of herons turning loops above the field, their bodies startling white against the background of green. Their elegance, the serene, fluent curves of their flight, seemed to merge into the ongoing stream of her longing, the desire, only lately admitted that she very much wanted to go home, She'd chosen this life because she couldn't imagine any other way, but over time, without her strictly being aware of it, the dead stares of the thousands of amputees had served to drain all the purpose out of her work. Those stares, the aura of hopelessness that always settled over the camps, implied that they knew something Jill didn't, a basic fact that had taken her years to understand. They were finished. Their lives were over if not now, then soon, and this applied to virtually every other Leonian as well. Her work was a delaying action at best, a brief comfort and hope to a very small few. She was handing them a glass of water through the window while the house burned down around their heads. She couldn't save them. She couldn't save anyone but herself, which made her presence here the worst sort of self-indulgence, her mission a long-running fantasy. I'll stop there.
0: Interesting. And why did you choose that?
1: Because it was so damn hard to write.
0: <laughs> and
1: it goes on. I only read you about half of it. Um, because then she starts thinking about a diamond smuggler who she's be- become romantically involved with and, it, and in a weird way starts to admire her. She starts to admire him.
0: So was it just sort of trying to get at the truth of what she was seeing that was hard?
1: Yeah, just trying to... Follow her as she's working it out in her own mind, but not specifically through a train of thought, but more a settling of thought and emotion and just, you know, this kind of meditative backing and feeling.
0: I have a few uh, more questions that I ask all my authors. Uh, the first one is, where do you write?
1: I write in the converted garage of my house.
0: And what do you do or where do you go when you want to get away from writing?
1: Um, on a daily basis, once I'm done writing, I try to get outside and sweat, either by doing yard work or working out. Or um, And then, you know, like for extended periods of time, I, I, I go away, you know, wherever. I just get away, get out of town.
0: And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My agent. And how have you dealt with rejection?
1: Badly. I mean, if For a bunch of years, every time I would get a rejection, it would be like the psychological equivalent of of their withdrawing permission to write. And um, once I figured out, well, you know, it doesn't matter if I get a rejection. I'm still writing. I could handle it a lot better. One thing I've discovered doing this kind of work is that failure is necessary. It's it's part of the business. It's part of the work. And, you know, you figure out a way to take those hits and, and keep on doing your work.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: Oh, man. What is my favorite word? Um, uh, 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 uh. I don't know. I could be sentimental and say love.
0: (laughs) That's okay. And you don't have to have one.
1: (laughs) We'll go with love.
0: (laughs) You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Ben Fountain, author of the novel, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. You can follow First Draft on Facebook, Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.